This week's episode is brought to you by Horizon Books. Yep, Horizon Books. Serving Seattle's book-loving community for 48 years with one of the best used book collections in the region. Interested in history? Interested in politics? Interested in the Pacific Northwest? Interested in Cascadia? Interested in just about anything there is to be interested in? Horizon Books has a book for you. Check out Horizon Books today and mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount. That's right, 10% discount between now and the end of the year. Our sponsor is Horizon Books and this is up zones. Things are changing. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Living as we are in an era that can oftentimes feel despairing, where the road to incremental change driven by good policy feels increasingly innavigable, and at our worst, it sometimes looks like it's either armed revolution or the bad guys win, I wanted to point to a small victory for hope, common sense, equity, where good policy meets social justice and the community leaders stepped up to the plate this past week, Minnesota whose Twin Cities have become an area that City Lab's Alexia Fernandez-Campbell calls an American success story. The Minneapolis and St. Paul area is home to one of the largest concentrations of Fortune 500 company headquarters and, relative to other large American cities, has low unemployment, little poverty, and more affordable housing than most of its peer cities. Much of the prosperity, which has been called the Minnesota Miracle, has been attributed to an unusual approach to sharing tax revenues between rich and poor communities in the region. But two years ago, and again here quoting Fernandez Campbell, an uncomfortable reality came to light. The Metropolitan Council, a regional planning council, began analyzing census data and discovered that the Twin Cities metro area is hardly a land of opportunity for everyone. The area had the largest wealth gap, employment gap, and home ownership gap between white residents and people of color among the country's 25 largest metro areas. Central to that racial gap across nearly every measure of economic stability and success, housing policy. Unsurprisingly, even the mostly progressive Twin Cities have had a long history, going back 100 years, of redlining and intentional segregation, whose impact is still being felt. This is just a reality across America, folks. Well, this past Friday, the Minneapolis City Council voted 12 to 1, and the Minneapolis Mayor, Jacob Frey, signed legislation that completely eliminates single-family zoning across the city. I think it's important here to remind listeners that eliminating single-family zoning does not eliminate single-family homes. To the contrary, it gives property owners significantly more freedom to build the kinds of homes they see fit on their own plots. What the law does accomplish is allow those homeowners who want to build duplexes, triplexes, and in denser neighborhoods, condos and apartment buildings, to do so. This mitigates a major problem of constrained supply and also allows those folks, generally folks of color, but also lower middle income folks of all races, the chance to live in neighborhoods with good amenities, walkability, access to schools and work, all without really doing much at all to quote unquote redistribute wealth. Just let people live where they want to live. Let landlords and developers offer housing in the so-called nice neighborhoods to anyone willing to move there. Don't constrain the natural supply of housing so tightly 
like, say, in San Francisco, where even the low-ranking Google employees now have to move out of the city. Minneapolis is a model for the future, with their Minneapolis 2040 plan, which is what, you know, this law really uh, stems from. They're preparing for growth in a more equitable, if imperfect, and at least a more rational way. We can do the same here. I don't know what's in Mayor Durkin's heart. She has disappointed me many times in her sole year in office. Sometimes I wonder if she is the mayor that we need. But I know she listens. I know she listens to those constituents who make their voices heard. I know she desperately wants to be reelected. I know that the city council is absolutely chock full of urbanists who believe in equitable zoning. Uh, uh, that is to say, less zoning generally who believe in more housing, more density, better transit, less accommodation for cars, which are a early 20th century innovation that don't have a place in a 21st century city. I know that a wide panoply of groups ranging from more Seattle to share the cities to tech for housing to sightline in the urbanist and more still are out there pushing for issues exactly like this. Together, we can get this exact kind of legislation in front of the mayor. There's a world not impossible to imagine where Seattle City Council puts up legislation on Mayor Durkin's desk to accomplish exactly what our brothers and sisters in Minneapolis accomplished. And all the various groups mentioned earlier speak loud, clear, and with one voice to give the mayor absolutely no choice but to sign that legislation and finally, after a century plus of discrimination, end single-family zoning. This is possible. And we have a roadmap now in Minnesota. My guest, Sina Mordazavi, is an old friend. You'll hear that in the tenor of our conversation. We're, we're actually roommates in graduate school, and so there's a, a kind of perpetual inside joke between us. Uh, I, I'm so far in it, I don't know how that translates, you know, outside. Even in the most serious moments, it's there, kind of dangling from the rafters, as if just waiting to erupt into laughter. But in, in all seriousness, Sina's life story is pretty amazing. Just about right up to the time he moved in with me, a feistier host might even take credit for what he did next, which was to convince a bunch of wealthy investors to give him millions of dollars to buy a mentoring software company based here in King County and then let him run it. But the realistic me has no choice but to concede that this guy is just a force of nature. He balances brilliant technocratic analysis with warm-hearted do-gooder, like just about very few I've ever met. If there's a poster child for the benefits of so-called neoliberal meritocracy, it's a guy who was born to Persian parents in Dubai, grew up in Vancouver, lived and worked in microfinance in Bangladesh and Tajikistan, married an Indian Catholic girl, and now runs a mentoring software company in Seattle. If you listen to the show, you know the hill I will die on is technocracy. I want to make leadership so good at what it does that it makes revolution unnecessary. Yeah, impossible to talk about even. That's a long way away, but uh, I think you have to start somewhere. And in that vein, I want my listeners to hear from Sina, who embodies that notion better than possibly any friend I've ever had. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I've known you for, we know each other for a while. Yeah. This is, uh, you're, you're no stranger it's kind of cool to see what you've been doing, uh, especially considering kind of some of the interesting stuff in your background, you know, where you've been and why don't you tell, where'd you grow up? Sure. Yeah. I was, uh, grew up in Dubai and then moved to Vancouver, Canada, where 
I spent most of my sort of growing up days. You were in Dubai when it's just as a little kid? And- yeah, yeah, up until around 12, I was oh, okay. uh, there and uh, saw kind of the city evolve very rapidly yeah. during that time. Yeah, because that was like the 80s, right? That's yeah. That's when it was really coming right coming hard and coming fast i think they did like it was that they decided to adopt common law or something like that and then so then all the businesses were able to go there is that that yeah i think they had uh what they call the sheikh who was kind of the king of that city uh, who had a vision for dubai to be kind of a metropolis Mm -hmm. and so he opened up the economy he loosened some of their laws yeah yeah and that really yeah pretty strict laws and then uh, that kind of just led to this huge boom and to where Dubai is today. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, and then what, why'd you move to, to Vancouver? Is that just your dad's job or something? Yeah, I think uh, just at the time with kind of the, the turmoil going on in that part of the world, uh, you know, my parents wanted uh, a better life for me and, and my family and my sister. So we moved to Vancouver, Canada, and uh, it was really a pivotal moment for me because it, it, it opened my eyes to how big the world is. I mean, going from a desert to Cascadia. Canada. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just, it's totally different. Yeah. And funny, one memory I have is rollerblading uh, in, uh, in Vancouver, and I had never rollerbladed down a hill before. Because there's no hills. Because <laughs> there's no hills. <laughs> so I just could put on my rollerblades, and I was this young kid trying to rollerblade, and I started going down this hill, and I didn't know how to stop. Right. So I was just out of control, and the only way I knew how to stop was to crash into a parked car <laughs> at the bottom of <laughs> the hill. That sounds like an incredibly teenage boy way to resolve the <laughs> right, problem. Right, exactly. Let me just crash into it and stop. So luckily I didn't get seriously injured, but but it was those kind of uh, sort of moments that really opened my eyes to the broader world that we live in. Yeah, that's funny. It's a really great and poignant way to think about it. Yeah. You never saw a hill until... <laughs> well, one, of, one of our guests last, uh, recently was saying... Uh, he never saw a mountain until wow. he flew to Seattle. Really? And then he, he saw, because he grew up in the Midwest. And yeah. He flew here, saw Rainier, like, on the plane. You know? Wow. Yeah. I heard some people feel a little claustrophobic with that, but I don't know if that applies. With, with mountains? Yeah, coming from a very plain, pl- um, flat sort of t- terrain to moving to mountains, or vice versa. Apparently, in World War II, a lot of people who lived in sort of mountainous regions got would freak out when they were on boats out in the middle of the ocean. Whoa, because it's just so it's open. So, exactly. It's like the world doesn't end. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I grew up in New York, uh-huh. uh, in and around the city, so it was pretty dense and busy. Even when I was in the suburbs, this New York suburbs where I went to high school were might have been the equivalent of like a Ballard. Oh, wow. You know, in terms of right. like density. So, I mean, I grew up always surrounded by huh. people, but, but New York is pretty flat. So oh, not, yeah. You know, you got to get upstate sure. before you get into the mountains. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I think, and back then, probably people weren't traveling as much, mm-hmm. and there weren't as many tall buildings. Maybe yeah, back in the in the forties when I was yeah. uh, a kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking more about the World War II folks, I guess. So then, yeah, I, I mean, I know you, you know after after high school and college and everything. I know you, you did a lot of traveling, and you you actually like lived and worked in is it Kajikistan or Tajikistan Tajikistan, yeah yeah yeah. yeah, I know it's one of the stands it's one of the stands (laughs) one of the uh, so tell me like what 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 brought you there yeah so I think uh what what piqued my interest really was microfinance so I I was doing my master's at at the University of Toronto and I read an economist article about microfinance Mm -hmm. and it just it just caught my eye I got really excited about it and I found a program that you could do most people do get excited about 
you know, sex, drugs, and microfinance. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. The three pillars of life, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so, so I got excited by, by that and found a program where I could go to Bangladesh, actually, is where mm-hmm. I started. Mm-hmm. And it was in the slums of Dhaka where I started my microfinance journey. And it was just such a rewarding experience working in that kind of environment, really helping women and people in poverty. So what were you doing specifically? So in that situation, I was working directly with the director of that organization called Safe Save. And we were essentially running, uh, modernizing their, their operations, you could say. So what, one of the things we did was at the time, if you remember the old Palm Pot, Palm Pilot sort of uh, handheld devices. Yeah. So they're we were. Like pre-smartphone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they were, they had a huge problem because they were doing everything on paper and pen and it would rain. The math yeah. would be off. Yeah. They would have to do data entry. Yeah, like it yeah. was a mess. So we uh, brought, introduced Palm Pilots to them. Mm-hmm. And the Palm Pilots allowed them to essentially track their activity on this electronic device and then mm-hmm. upload it into the computers. And it mm-hmm. was it was just such an amazing system. And beyond that, a lot of the loan officers couldn't read or write. But wow. we used icons on the Palm Pilots with noises beeping. So tell me, that's really interesting that you've got folks who are not themselves educated enough even to read or write. Right. Who are making determinations around money. Yeah. And, and the, and, you know, finance, it's literally, it's finance. Right. Right. It's microfinance, but it, yeah. it's finance. And so what's the principle at play here? You know, a lot of folks might hear about microfinance, but what, what does that mean? What does it mean? What are they doing? Who are they lending to? What's mm-hmm. the kind of operating principle? Yeah. It's a great question. So the finance world often forgets about the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a huge segment. It's a huge market. It's a huge economy. That's kind of the black market. It's uh, it's the untouched, untapped market. Mm-hmm. So finance really is the oil that runs the economy. And when that segment of the society does not have the oil, they can't run efficiently and they mm-hmm. can't escape the. But right, they can't trap. borrow to grow their business out or exactly. Um, yeah. So they're 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 left out of the economic system, and that prevents them from escaping the poverty trap. Mm-hmm. And so what microfinance does is it allows them to tap into a financial resource to help them grow their businesses and improve their livelihoods. And the reason it works is because there's something that's actually more powerful than a credit score. Mm-hmm. And it's the social capital. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And so the renewal rates actually were higher than, than many other programs or many other traditional finance. What do you mean by renewal rates? So their, their default rates, let's oh, say, the reverse yeah. of that, yep, essentially, um, was extremely high because there was something much more powerful and it was the reputation. Right. So a lot of people in these That's little... Everyone wants a, re- a good reputation. Yeah. And over there, it's your livelihood. Mm-hmm. So your neighbors, your name dictates how people treat you. Mm-hmm. And if you leave your, your circle of uh, your, your little mini society in your neighborhood. It's not like in the West where you can just move and Somewhere it's else. no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. When you move, you're an outsider to that next society, sort of uh, group mm-hmm. and, and they would consider you an outsider. Mm-hmm. So if you fall back on your loans, all you had to do was tell the neighbors that this person was falling back and there was a lot of pressure. I wouldn't say a lot of pressure rather, but a lot of um, community understanding that if someone falls behind, we can help them get out of it because it affects us as a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was very powerful to see how society sort of brought this together in a way that the traditional credit scores and all the different things we do here couldn't do. Wow. 
Right. Uh, and it was a, a, extremely impactful and it helped them to get out of the poverty trap and it helped the finan- microfinance institutions to be healthy, uh, profitable, so they don't have to... So they can keep doing it. They can keep doing it. Yeah. They don't have to rely on grants and other things yeah. to serve the, the yeah. people. That's great. And so now you come full circle and, you know, you got, you know, we met in school. Yes. Uh, and, th- and now you're kind of like, um, you just said to yourself, I want to convince a bunch of rich people to pay for a company and let me run it. Right. I don't know how the hell you did that. <laughs> but I, I mean, so, so tell us about what, what are you doing now? Sure. Uh, so I heard about uh, the search fund model while I was, I was out Warren doing the MBA and the schools, um, there was a kind of a, I went to every uh, information session and every, every, I just wanted to learn everything I could. So I heard about something called the search fund model, which actually started about 30 years ago that brought hungry sort of entrepreneurs to businesses that needed new management or were looking for a transition and, and helping them sort of grow. Mm-hmm. And again, it's focused more on the bottom of the barrel. Essentially, smaller companies, mm-hmm. usually the founder is kind of approaching retirement age mm-hmm. and has no one to pass the business on to. Mm-hmm. But the big, uh, the big firms out there aren't interested because they're just too small for them to really uh, right. go in and, and, and transition, essentially. Right. Um, so I heard about this model. I got really excited by it. And luckily there was a foundation for me to follow or the model essentially to follow. But I had to hit the ground and, and I kind of I remember you were working way. for years. I mean, yeah. two, like, but two, three years, right? You were really hot, maybe two years. Yeah. I think the fundraising took about six months. Um, and then the search for the business took about a year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so it was about a year and a half yeah, all in. Got you, got you. Um, but it was a lot of traveling, a lot of crashing on couches. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty around whether I'd get there. Or and not. you don't drink. So you had to deal with the stress. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. There's no escape. <laughs> There's no escape. <laughs> yeah. You know, what happens? I mean, you, you, you know, we'll talk about your company in a second. You, you got the company that you were able to convince these investors to buy. Right. What happens if you go two, three years and you just don't find one? You just flame out? I mean, is that the idea? Yeah, I think that's something um, every, what we, we call ourselves searchers, every searcher has to kind of ask themselves mm-hmm. is, are they ready to take that risk? And essentially, you're, 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 you're not getting the compensated by market rates. So you're kind of taking a pay cut to do this. Uh, and so you need to decide how long you're willing to do that for. Mm-hmm. And investors need to decide how long to keep funding you. Uh, so I think the statistics are one in three end up acquiring a business mm-hmm. versus okay. uh, the others that don't. And, so the and investors know that there's a two-thirds chance they're going to strike out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. If I remember correctly, that's the numbers. And that's okay because I think just doing the search gives you so much experience. Right. And a lot of people just don't like it. And so they just can do go back to whatever they were doing before take a, take a day job or take it yeah exactly yeah. do something yeah. that they feel more passionate about so it's a great way to kind of test the waters without having to um jump all in essentially mm-hmm. great and so what do you guys do yeah tell me about uh, so cronus is a, a mentoring platform so we have a SaaS solution so it's a it's a cloud hosted software that allows for large organizations to run their mentoring programs mm-hmm. Um, so today, there's a lot of mentoring programs out there, and they're typically run in Excel or on paper and pen, right. and it's just not scalable, mm-hmm. it's not a great user experience, and there's no strategic insights that people can draw from their programs. But mentoring is an extremely powerful concept, and it's been around since the beginning of time, but now we're bringing it into the modern world through technology, essentially. 
Um, and so this is, uh, is it only applicable in, in corporate America? Could it be used in nonprofits, in government? I mean, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have a, a, a softer side to me, I guess you could say, with my microfinance work in, in Bangladesh, Tajikistan, and all that. So uh, what I love about Cronus is that it does have this component to it where we have organizations like Big Brothers Big Sisters or the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation okay. and others that essentially use our platform to help serve their their constituents and whether it's a it's a it's a little brother or a little sister or whether it's someone that's recently diagnosed with a with a really critical condition mm -hmm. we're bringing the power of mentoring to help them traverse those challenges that's cool that's exciting yeah and i, I mean it's one of the things that i know uh, I'm, I'm in corporate america by day you know and, and i know notice that you know there's some real diversity and inclusion issues uh it's it's not even that you know, it's not even like there's, yeah, whatever, bigotry at the top. It's just that without maybe making a conscious effort, like sometimes attracts like. And so some folks who are probably would not only benefit personally the most, but would maybe benefit the company the most if they developed. Right. Right. Uh, they're shut out of the process because they don't know how to find the right mentors or mentors aren't looking for them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you guys deal with that at all? We do, definitely. I think diversity and inclusion is becoming more and more a topic in corporate America. Yeah. And a big part of it is because I think they're realizing that it's not just a nice to have. It's not a feel good thing. Right. It's really, it is a, it, it results in dollars and cents, profits and losses. Well, you, you sell more to your customers when you think like your customers. Yes. And it's hard to think like your customers if you're all one demographic, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so what they're talking about are things like groupthink. And, and there's yeah. a great yeah. sort of story about how, uh, the, the airbag for cars, when yeah. they, when they first rolled that out, uh, they were, they were meant to save people's lives. But actually what was happening, they were finding that women and children were actually dying. Because they were designing it for men. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you go and look at the engineering team, they were all men. Yeah. And so they were building these airbags right. for a certain weight and height right. that was causing people to die. What they should have done is had a bunch of little kids doing the engineering. <laughs> right, right. 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 Yeah. They would have been way better. Way better, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that's one version of diversity, I guess. But, but people are talking about that now. There's a real movement around that. And I think mentoring is a key tool mm -hmm. that you can use to impact those right. initiatives you're giving folks who are potentially ha have a lot of unlock a lot of locked up potential right the ability to unlock it because maybe they're from a traditionally you know i'm thinking of it doesn't have to be even racial necessarily or gender but just traditionally so from, you know lower education but yep. they're in your workplace or a lower opportunity maybe they got the education but they whatever exactly and and so so you guys are are you focusing on that area yourself yeah it's amazing once you open the door how diverse the dni programs are yeah okay <laughs> um so even you mentioned like um maybe first-time college students yeah so first-time college students that are getting their first job mm -hmm. like, even, meaning like first generation college students. yeah first yeah. generation uh, college students mm -hmm. even just getting their job they they don't know how to write a resume. They don't have people that they can ask. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so having a mentor help guide them through that, how to have your first interview, how to write mm -hmm. a, a strong resume. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in the job, how do you dress on your first day? Or mm -hmm. how do you present yourself to others? I mean, there's so much there. And so it can span from women children, minorities, to even things like um, first-time So it sounds like even college and, and educational institutions would be like a customer for you guys. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
And how do you guys play in the Seattle community? I mean, you guys are one of the, you're smaller, mm-hmm. uh, you're not Amazon, but you're one of the corporate stewards here in the city. What, 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 how, are, how do you guys fit into the community inside Seattle? Yeah, I think we think of ourselves as uh, in, in many different ways. So, so one is we do like to partner with local organizations like Big Brothers Big Sisters of Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. So they're one of our larger programs, and they're doing extremely well. And we see them impacting our community firsthand. Essentially, mm-hmm. we're powering them to do what they do extremely well. Um, but we also work with big organizations, and so some of those uh, in the local area are able to use our our initiatives to help veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are trying to get back into into civilian life, mm-hmm. or other DNI initiatives that we had mentioned earlier, but also we like to kind of walk the talk, and, and even with our own policies at Cronus, we're able to think very progressively about a maternity leave or mm-hmm. paid leave and other other like things that we look at. That <laughs> yeah, two <laughs> weeks. Well, no, we give three. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but no, we have very very sort of uh, forward thinking ways that we're trying mm-hmm. to impact our community both at a local level and broader. Hey, we like to end every show with a segment we call If You Care About, You Should. Fill in the blanks. Great. Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, So I think if you care about innovation and moving really our society forward, you should care about diversity and inclusion. I think I said that right. Okay. Is that the right yeah. blanks I filled in? Yeah. DNI good. <laughs> DNI good. Exactly. Exclusion exactly. Back. Right. Exactly. If we all can just get together and, and live harmoniously, we'll all be in a better place. Sina Mortazavi. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Eamon. Real pleasure. Yeah. Uh, it's always great when one of your oldest friends calls you Eamon. Sina, don't think I didn't hear that. But still... Check out Sina's company, Cronus, that's C-H-R-O-N-U-S. They're a company founded with a mission to enrich people's lives with technology that drives effective learning. They're doing really great stuff, both in private and non-for-profit sectors. As always, dope opening poetry sample by Anthony McPherson, music by The Subcons, and sound by Naboo. This is a Cascadia underground production, and I am your host, Ian Martinez. See you next week. Listen, we're looking for artists. As you know, the second season here of Upzones, we've been focusing uh, on many different voices, but specifically artists. If you have any artists in your orbit who are Seattle-based or King County-based, who are making contributions to the region, whose art speaks to the changes in the city, we want to hear from them. We've got some really cool stuff coming for the second half of the season, but... Uh, we could always do better. Get us on Twitter at Upzones Podcast. Get us here. Get me personally. I'm your host, Ian Martinez, at ianwentwest at gmail.com. I'm probably opening the door to a lot of spam, but who cares? I want to hear from you. So we're looking for artists to round out a second half of our second season, and I would really love to hear from you.
Thanks and talk soon.